0: Okay, Psalm 97 The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of isles be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. Let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. You who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. All right, today we are in uh, Leviticus chapter 8, 1 through 13, and this is the consecration of the Aaronic Priesthood, part 1. And uh, before I start reading that... (coughs) Just if you get time, it's a very short um, chapter, uh, Leviticus 12, it goes uh, 1 through 8, we'll be doing that in about 8 weeks, I typed it this past Monday, great stuff, take a read, think on it, and uh, see if you can figure out what the Lord is trying to tell you there. All right, Leviticus 8, starting in verse 1, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, the anointing oil, a bull as the sin offering, 2 Rams and a basket of unleavened bread, and gather all the congregation together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And the congregation was gathered together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is what the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the tunic on him, girded him with the sash, clothed him with the robe, and put the ephod on him and he girded him with the intricately woven band of the ephod, and with it tied the ephod on him. Then he put the breastplate on him, and he put the Urim and Thummim in the breastplate, and he put the turban on his head. Also on the turban on its front, he put the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 10, also Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, anointed the altar and all its utensils and the laver and its base to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Then Moses brought Aaron's sons and put tunics on them, girded them with sashes and put hats on them as the Lord had commanded Moses. All right, from time to time, people ask me about my credentials, usually about what denomination I am. And I have no set answer for that. I usually say something like, I'm a Bible preacher. However, that just tells what I do. It doesn't tell what brought me to this point. I met the Lord in 2001. For the first two or so years after that, I read the Bible cover to cover about once a week. I never counted how many times, but I read it at my store and I was there 70 hours a week. So unless someone walked in, that is what I was doing. When I got home, I kept on reading it. After I closed the store and went back into the wastewater business, I kept reading it. I also started answering Bible questions on the beach. You learn a lot more doing that than you do just reading. When you're put on the spot and look dumb, you determine not to do it again. Eventually, the county took over our wastewater plant. It was right down the road in Gulfgate, and I had no time for government employment ever again. And so I asked the preacher of the uh, church, oh, I'm sorry, that was the first time the county took over. I was at that plant and they took it over. Then I went out afterward, after meeting Lord onto Siesta Key and I ran that plant. And that's when the county took over that plant and I said, I'm done with wastewater because it's all government now. So I asked the preacher of the church that I was at about what I needed to do in order to get ordained. He told me to get a Bible college degree and he would ordain me. I did and he didn't. It wasn't really his fault, but the story goes back to my beard. We'll leave it at that. After that, I called the pastor at Grace Baptist Church, and he told me to come over to Grace, let the congregation get to know me for a year, and then he and the deacons would determine if I was ordainable. I went, I was, and he did. After my year of probation, they held a pastor-deacon interrogation going over the major points of theology asking anything they wished on bibliology, theology proper, which includes Trinitarianism, Christology, Pneumatology, Angiology, Anthropology, Hamartiology, Soteriology, Ecclesiology, and Eschatology. They could ask anything they wanted, and I had to be ready with an answer. After that, I had to preach a sermon or two in front of the church, which I did, and then the congregation voted on the matter. Apparently, the beard wasn't an issue there. They approved it, and I was ordained on 24 January of 2010. That is it in a nutshell. Well, I did wear a suit, a tie, shoes, and a beard on the day I was ordained. Our text verse comes from Psalm 132, verse 9. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. We've already gone through all of the advanced details for the ordination of Aaron and his sons. Those sermons, though, had to be taken along with everything else concerning the sanctuary and all of its implements. Everything is tied together, and they form a united whole. Even in today's sermon, we cannot escape going back and picking out some of the details from the past. It's simply not possible without missing a ton of the symbolism of what lies ahead for us. The verses in this chapter lack much of the detail that was given. Even though we'll go back to form a broad brushstroke of Christ and His work, we're going to leave out far more than we will include. There's just enough added so that you can be reminded that everything about this ordination process is, in type and in picture, looking forward to Christ. The details are logical, orderly, and add in some new information as well. More than anything, the order of what is stated And the dignity of how everything is accomplished is what we are to focus on today. The Lord had called, and now the calling was being acted upon. Time and time again in this chapter, the words, As the Lord commanded, are stated. There is a set procedure which he laid out, and that set procedure will be followed carefully. The importance of this is because of the typology. In order for the type to reflect the antitype, meaning Christ Jesus, Everything had to be exact. Now, as we look back on these things, we can clearly see Christ revealed in them. In turn, we are given the surety that our hopes are placed in the right basket. The word we have been given is sure. The hope that we possess is well-grounded, and therefore the things which are promised to us but are yet future are certain to come to pass. It's all to be found in his... Wait a minute. Just so you know, Aaron did have a beard as was the custom of all men in Israel. That too is to be found in his superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is a gathering at the door of the tent of meeting. It's verses 1 through 5. Verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is the customary set of words which indicate that a new train of thought is being introduced. In this case it introduces a section which will last all the way through until verse 10:8. Until then the ordination of Aaron and his sons will be highlighted in detail. This ordination process follows directly from the instructions given to Moses concerning the making of the priestly garments in Exodus 28 and the instructions given for the ordination process which is found in Exodus 29. And then some instructions for what should be done in the official duties of the priest were given in Exodus 30. What was instructed then will be complied with now. At least this is so up to a point. In chapter 10, there will be a deviation from the instructions and that deviation will result in death. What is interesting is that the ordination process that we will now see was directed to be accomplished in Exodus chapter 40 as the book was closing out. However, before actually accomplishing it, the Lord first explained the different types of sacrifices that would be handled by the priests. This is what we've seen for the past seven chapters. Only now, after giving those minute instructions, are the priests ready to be installed into their special priestly office. It would make no sense to ordain priests for the office and only then explain to them the procedures for the various sacrifices that they needed to perform. Everything is precise, logical, and perfectly laid out. Each step leads to the next, just as one would expect from an instruction manual for putting together a very complicated piece of machinery. Verse 2, take Aaron and his sons with him. The words once again confirm what has already been seen earlier in Exodus. Aaron was chosen not by Moses because they were brothers, but rather Aaron was chosen by the Lord and the Lord is now directing the ordination of the one he previously chose. It is intended to negate any feelings of favoritism by the other Israelites. Unfortunately, it is something that won't actually occur until the Lord has to defend his choice at the expense of the lives of those who rebel against him and against his decision. Verse 2 continues, and the garments, the anointing oil, A bull as the sin offering, two rams, and a basket of unleavened bread. The description for the garments was given in Exodus 28, those for the anointing oil in Exodus 30, and the requirement for the bull, the rams, and the bread was given in Exodus 29. In the Hebrew, several definite articles are used to indicate that these things are to be complied with, and it's in accordance with those previous stated chapters. These things were minutely described, and so, what was described is now expected to be brought forth. The words are very precise because the typology of Christ is not to be deviated from. Verse 3 And gather all the congregation together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. The words here indicate at least the elders of the assembly who represent the elders. This is explicitly noted in verse 9 1. The elders of Israel represented the children of Israel the size of the courtyard would not allow even a very small portion of the people to meet in this location, and so their designated representatives would be witnesses. Any others who could fit in probably did, and it is only speculation, but possible that others went up on the surrounding hillsides to witness this marvelous spectacle. The door being specified is intended to prefigure Christ. There is the altar where the sacrifices will be made, There's the laver, where the water for the washing will come from, but the door alone is specified. Jesus said, I am the door. He is the door to the tent of meeting or the spot where communion with God takes place. The wording is carefully given to show us what is on God's mind. Even 1,500 years before the coming of Christ, the ordination is shouting out what God would do through him. Verse 4, so Moses did as the Lord commanded him. The Bible is replete with words like this. For Moses, it is a phrase commonly spoken of him. He was commanded by the Lord to follow certain procedures, and the Bible then notes his obedience to those commands. The Bible that he had still exists today. It's just completed now. And the question is, would the words recorded about you say the same thing, or would they say that you failed to do as the Word of God spoke? When Moses did fail to do as instructed, it cost him very dearly. That is coming up in the book of Numbers. And to this day, his error is recorded for us too, hopefully to learn from. Your life is being recorded as well. And at some point, you will have to stand before the Lord and give an account for your actions. It is hoped that you won't be ashamed at the time of your trial. Verse 4 continues, And the congregation was gathered together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. It is a public consecration, and this for a couple of reasons. The first has already been explained, which is to show that Aaron was not simply selected by Moses because he was Moses' brother, but rather it was because the Lord had selected him. Secondly, because it was public, the people would then be, through their witnessing of the consecration, agreeing to the mediation of Aaron and his sons on their behalf. However many could fit into the courtyard would do so. And as the consecration went on for an entire week, people could come and go, allowing many to witness the national rite of ordination. Verse 5 And Moses said to the congregation, This is what the Lord has commanded to be done. His words here sum up all of what was presented while on Mount Sinai concerning the ordination process. He presented this to the people as the command of the Lord. As a congregation, they are now summoned together to perform the same word of the Lord which he had commanded. Beautiful garments, so rich and glorious, to adorn the high priest of Israel. But they only point to our Lord, victorious in every detail. There is a story to tell. In them we see his beauty, his splendor and glory. In them we see his work accomplished on behalf of us. Yes, in every detail there is a marvelous story about the coming Christ, our Lord Jesus. And they tell yet more that of which he does even now. They tell of his work interceding to the Father for us. For to him, God did all high priestly duties endow. Yes, he stands before his father, our great Lord, Jesus. Our second thought today is the consecration, clothing and anointing. It's verses six through 13. Verse six, then Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. As a part of the ordination process, Moses is to wash Aaron and his sons with water. This implies an entire washing of their whole bodies. At this strategic place, just between where the people were allowed to come and the entrance to the place where the Lord dwelt, they were to be prepared for being acceptable to enter into his presence. The people being witnesses of this part of the process was intended to show them that they remained unclean and unacceptable to enter where their king was. Only those chosen and properly prepared could do so. After this full washing of their bodies, the laver will be used differently. This is seen in Exodus chapter 30. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, you shall also make a laver of bronze with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it in between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water lest they die. So shall they wash their hands and their feet lest they die, and it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their generations. Each step in both ordination and in daily duties, they're being progressively instructed in the holiness of God and the need to be pure and undefiled as they approach him on behalf of the people. This washing pictures the total cleansing of the priests. In Aaron's case, as the high priest, it symbolizes Christ's perfect purity as our high priest. It points to his baptism before he entered into his public service in order to fulfill all righteousness. For the sons of Aaron, it pictures those who follow Christ and are purified by his work. This is seen in John chapter 13, where Christ said this, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but he is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. John uses two different words there. One signifies a full bathing, which they're going through in this ordination process. The second indicates a lesser washing. Through Christ's work, we are completely cleaned. We stand justified and free from guilt. However, we also continue to go through a process of sanctification where we need to be purified from time to time. This is pictured in the priest's need to wash their hands and their feet as they ministered to the Lord. These external washings signify the universal corruption of man and our need for external purification. The water pictures the spiritual regeneration which occurs when we are set apart by Christ. Only after the washing was accomplished were the garments then put on them. In the case of Aaron, his garments are emblematic of the divine work of Christ. He will next have seven articles placed upon him, a tunic, a sash, a robe, an ephod, a breastplate, and a turban. Each represents an aspect of Christ's work. Together they form a picture of Christ, the prophet, the priest, and the king, who is completely distinct and set apart from all others. In the case of Aaron and his sons, though, the cleansing now gives clear symbolic significance. It is to demonstrate in type and in shadow that cleansing from sin must precede being clothed in righteousness and the anointing of the Spirit. Without being first cleansed, no person can draw near to God or be shown his favor through the sealing of his Spirit. Verse 7, and he put the tunic on him. The ketonet, or tunic, was first mentioned in Exodus 28, verse 4, where it was called a skillfully woven tunic. It was mentioned again in Exodus 28, verse 39, where it was said to be made of fine linen thread. An unusual Hebrew word here, shabats, was used to describe it. That word means it was made of checkered weaving pattern, and thus indicating something that is set or fixed. Flavius Josephus said that it was a tunic circumscribing or closely encompassing the whole body and having tight sleeves for arms. This garment pictures Christ's righteousness, which is checkered into his very being. It is set and unchanging. As it is the garment closest to the body of Aaron, it is typical of Christ's righteousness that literally adorns him, it being an essential part of his very nature. As it will protrude out both on his arms and from under his robe, It is a symbol of the always evident righteousness of Christ. Even during his last moments before the crucifixion, Pontius Pilate proclaimed this aspect of him. He said, I find no fault in this man. Verse 7 continues, girded him with the sash. This avnet or girdle was also mentioned in the same two verses of Exodus 24. It is a belt or a sash that is worn at the waist and was said to be made of woven work. Later in Exodus 39, it was said to be of fine woven linen with blue, purple, and scarlet thread made by a weaver. What is unusual is that it was probably not visible at all, as it would be under the other garments. And yet, the instructions were specific concerning its special weaving. This hidden sash is reflective of Christ's divine majesty, as is seen in Psalm 93. It says there, the Lord reigns he is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Verse 7 going on, clothed him with the robe. The mail or robe is a type of tunic which would reach from the neck all the way down to somewhere around the knees, and some scholars believe it might have even gone down to his feet. It was thought to be completely seamless as a garment, as can be inferred from Exodus 39, verse 22, which said, He made the robe of the ephod of woven work all of blue. The term woven work implies a seamless garment. However, Flavius Josephus explicitly documents this fact in his commentary on the priestly garments. He says that the coat did not consist of two parts. Nor was it sewed upon the shoulder, nor the side, but was one long piece of woven work. This robe is further described in Exodus 28 with these words. It says, there shall be an opening for his head in the middle of it. It shall have a woven binding all around its opening, like the opening in a coat of mail, so that it does not tear. It would have a hole for the head to go through, and it had no sleeves. Therefore, the top portion of it would be mostly covered by the ephod and the breastplate, which would go over it. However, the lower part was fully visible. The plain blue would be a beautiful contrast to the variegated iphod and the gleaming breastplate. The blue, as you know from the Bible, always signifies the law, especially in adherence to it. In a type of Christ, this blue robe signifies Christ Jesus is the embodiment of the law. In Exodus 28, it was described with a word, Khalil, translated as all, as in all of blue. That comes from the verb kalal, which means to complete or to make perfect. Thus, the uh, robe was entirely made of only this blue. It is indicative of Christ who perfectly fulfilled the law, completing it on our behalf. He is literally robed in the completion of the law. Also, as the robe was seamless, it points to John's words about Jesus on the cross, where it said this, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. Shortly after this occurred, John records Jesus' dying words, It is finished. The robe which Aaron is being clothed in now, in Leviticus, was merely a shadow or a picture of Christ embodying the law, fulfilling it, and finishing it for us. However, before he died, something else was recorded about Christ's tunic. Despite dividing his other garments, the value of his tunic led them to say this, let us not tear it, but let us cast lots for it, whose it shall be. In contrast to this, in Matthew 26, verse 65, the high priest of Israel tore his clothes during Jesus' trial. This was in direct violation of the law of Moses. In Leviticus 21, it says this, He who is the high priest among his brethren, on whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who is consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes. In the treatment of these two garments, there is seen an ending of the old order of things. The law of Moses was ended in Christ's work, and the new covenant was established in his blood. The note of keeping the high priest's robe from tearing was given as a contrasting picture of the true high priest's garment not being torn. But the recording of the high priest tearing his garment signifies the ending of that priesthood. That Christ's garment wasn't torn, and yet his body was, signifies the introduction of the new. In describing this robe in the book of Exodus, a very rare word, tahara, was used to describe the hem around the neck. The word comes from the verb hara, which means to burn with anger. Mm -hmm. In this, the symbolism is obvious. The anger of the Lord at the sin of man is what was on display there at the cross of Calvary. The penalty for that sin was the tearing of Christ's body, the true robe of humanity. Verse 7 continues, and put the ephod on him. The materials for the ephod were described in Exodus 28 verses 5 through 8 says there, they shall take the gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and the fine linen, and they shall make the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen artistically worked. It shall have two shoulder straps joined at its two edges, and so it shall be joined together. And the intricately woven band of the ephod which is on it shall be of the same workmanship made of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. The ephod is a sleeveless garment, like a waistcoat. It was made of the same colors as the veil of the tabernacle, but with the addition of gold thread added into it. The colors used in it indicate divinity, royalty for the gold, the law for blue, royalty for the purple, which is a combination of blue and red, and war, blood, and judgment for the red, and righteousness for the woven linen. This ephod will bear the breastplate, which will next be placed over it just as the ark bore the mercy seat. Though the ark was described first, it is the mercy seat which sits on top of it and crowns the ark. The ark embodies the law and thus the old covenant, while the mercy seat pictures the satisfaction of the law through the shedding of the blood. The same is true with the ephod and the breastplate. On the ephod will be two stones with the names of the children of Israel engraved on them. Thus, it signifies the high priest's role to bear the sufferings and the labors of his people. On the breastplate will be 12 stones, which will be engraved with the names of the children of Israel. This then signifies that the high priest sympathizes with his people as an intercessor before God. In both, the work of Christ is seen. First, he bore our burdens, and then he became our intercessor. This is the reason for the order of each description. Marvelous wisdom is seen even in the order of how each thing is described. Verse 7 continues, And he girded him with the intricately woven band of the ephod, and with it tied the ephod on him. This is the last time that the cheshev, or band, is to be seen in Scripture. Goodbye, cheshev. It has only been used in connection with this ephod. It is the band, or the belt, which would keep the two lower parts of the ephod held close to the body. This particular band was made with the same materials as the Iphod itself. It is believed to have been sewn onto the ephod at one point, and then it could be wrapped around the body and secured by strings or a button or some other way. Its use is seen at the time of the ordination of Aaron here in Leviticus 8. The idea of this band pictures readiness for service. Despite being the high priest, Aaron was to be a servant of the people, mediating for them. Being girded and ready for service is a theme which is seen numerous times in the Bible, and it was something which Christ himself did not draw away from, but rather he embraced it. We read about his being girded to serve in John chapter 13. It says there, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. The gold which was woven into this belt anticipated the divine intervention of Christ for us. This is seen in Revelation 1, verse 13. It says there, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Aaron, wearing this ephod and band, was a type of Christ. The particular materials in them symbolize the services which Christ now renders to us as our human divine mediator. Though ascended to heaven, the book of Hebrews says that he is there in the presence of God, even right now, making intercession for us. Verse eight, then he put the breastplate on him. The instructions for the Hoshen, or breastplate are found in Exodus 28 verses 15 through 30. Its full name is the breastplate of judgment. It took an entire sermon to describe the marvelous things which are seen in this particular item here and so if you want to know what that symbolism is or if you've forgotten it you're going to need to take the afternoon off from sports and watch that sermon again. There you will see such marvelous pictures of Christ that you simply won't believe it. Verse 8 continues, and he put the Urim and Thummim in the breastplate. The Urim and Thummim are described in Exodus 28, verse 30. They are two of the most enigmatic items to be seen in all of the things associated with the sanctuary and the rites which accompany it. Urim is the plural of the word ur, or fire. It means lights. Thummim is the plural of the word "tome or integrity. It means perfections or that which is blameless or innocent. Together, they are literally translated lights and perfections. Interestingly, it was Moses who deposited the tablets of the testimony into the Ark of the Covenant. And it is also Moses who places the Urim and the Thummim into the breastplate for Aaron. Moses, or he who draws out, is the one to put the items in. A direct tie is being made between the ark and its two stone tablets and the breastplate and these two stones. What the Urim and Thummim actually did, or what they were, or how they were used, is unknown. But we do know that they were used for inquiring of God. This is seen, for example, in Ezra 2, verses 62 and 63, where it says, "'These sought their listing among those "'who were registered by genealogy, but they were not found. "'Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood "'as defiled.'" And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till a priest could consult with the Urim and Thummim. Both the stone tablets and the Urim and Thummim gave forth the word of the Lord. And both the ark and the breastplate were containers for that word. In both cases, Moses was the one who placed the stones into the containers. As I said, Urim means lights. Numerous times in the Bible, the law of the Lord The word of the Lord or the judgments of the Lord are said to be light. I'll give you three examples. This is from Proverbs chapter 6. It says, for the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. And then from Isaiah 51, it says, listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation. For law will proceed from me and I will make my justice rest as a light of the people's And from the 119th Psalm, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Next, thumim comes from the word tom. This corresponds to the adjective tamim, or perfections, and thus being blameless. This is seen in the following two verses. From Psalm 18, it says, the word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. And then from Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. In these and other examples, we can find that the law of the Lord is what is pictured in the Urim and Thummim, and so it has the same meaning as the tablets within the ark. Christ fulfilled the law, and it was secreted away under the mercy seat. He thus embodies the law, and his blood covers the sins of the law for his people. In placing the Urim and Thummim within the breastplate of judgment, it signifies that our faith in his work is what justifies us. If we need to consult God, we do it through Christ. Matthew Henry gives a splendid analogy of these things. He says, now Christ is our oracle. By him, God in these last days makes known himself and his mind to us. He is the true light the faithful witness, the truth itself, and from him we receive the spirit of truth who leads us into all truth. The truly amazing thing about this is that such minute detail was given for things that were to remain completely unseen, and yet they perfectly describe what Christ has done for us. In Christ we are safe, we are secure, and we are so forever. Verse nine, and he put the turban on his head, the mitznefet or turban, was also made of fine woven linen, like the tunic which was first put on Aaron. It again reflects Christ's absolute righteousness. It is what crowns him, and it defines his very character. Together, this tunic and turban symbolize Christ's pure and unsullied life and authority. Verse 9 going on, also the turban on its front, he put the golden plate, the holy crown, This golden plate here called the Holy Crown was described in Exodus 28 with these words. You shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord, (Kadosh Yehovah. And you shall put on it a blue cord that it may be on the turban. It shall be on the front of the turban, so it shall be on Aaron's forehead That Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things, which the children of Israel hallow in all their holy gifts, and it shall always be on his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. The word translated as plate is tzitz. It signifies a flower or a blossom. Along with that, a new descriptor is given here in Leviticus with the words netzer ha-kodesh, or crown the holy The word netzer, being introduced here, signifies something set apart. It is this golden plate placed on his forehead which is the identifying mark of his separation from all others. It pictures the royal kingship of Christ. Unlike Israel, which had offices of king and priest, which were never to be intermingled, Christ is the fulfillment of them both. This is explicitly stated by the prophet Zechariah concerning the coming Messiah, he says this in Zechariah 6, Take the silver and gold, make an elaborate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, speaking of the Messiah, to come from his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory. He shall sit and rule on his throne." So he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. The special word used to describe this plate, tzitz, speaks of Christ's human and divine natures. The pure gold represents his pure divinity, but that it is a flower speaks of his humanity. This is seen where the same word speaks of the fading glory of man in Isaiah 40. The voice said, cry out, and he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and its loveliness is like the flower of the field, that word there. Unlike fallen man, though, Christ is the unfading flower who stepped out of heaven to restore us to that same beautiful state, just as Bob said as he opened us today. Wonderful things are lying ahead for us. The engraving of holiness to the Lord on this plate signifies the perfection of Christ, It is he who is the true mediator for God's people. Not Mary, okay? Don't get into that crazy stuff. It is he who makes our offerings acceptable to God once again. And it is he who restores us fully and completely to our Heavenly Father. That there were two words on the engraving also signifies his divine human nature, Kadosh Yehovah. The eight letters signify the new beginnings which are found in Christ Jesus. In fact, the name of Jesus in Greek, is numerically equal to 888. Thus, he is the ultimate example of new beginnings for fallen man. The blue cord, which tied the plate to the turban, signifies the law as fulfilled, which ties the divine Lord to his intercessory role as our high priest. It is he who is the bridge between the infinite Father and finite us the specific naming of the placement of the plate on the forehead of the high priest is to show both the place of conscience and that of identification. Remember, we're talking about Revelation 13 and the mark of the beast on the forehead. This is the place of identification. The duality is seen in that he is first conscious of those he ministers for, meaning us, and he is also conscious of his rightful place before his father. Secondly, it reveals his priestly identity presented before us and which comes from his father. It is he who bore our iniquities at the cross, and it is he who still makes our sin-filled lives acceptable as holiness to the Lord. Only through him can we be considered acceptable to God. This is actually realized on the very last page of the Bible with these marvelous words, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. So you see, we got a choice to make. We can either have Christ's name on our forehead, bearing his identity before God the Father, or we can take the mark of the beast and be forever separated from God the Father. Everything is coming to its fulfillment as pictured in the Bible. These old things that we seem uh, it's irrelevant. I don't need to read the book of Leviticus. Points to everything else in the whole Bible. It's all tied together. It's a unified whole. It is this netzer Hakodesh, or holy crown, which in typology is seen to be Christ, who is the king priest, who is set apart by God from among the sons of men. Verse 9 continues, as the Lord had commanded Moses. The clothing of Aaron as the high priest is now complete. In order to show that this was done in accord with the word of the Lord, this clause is now stated. What was commanded has been performed. Verse 10. Also Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. After the clothing of the high priest, but before his personal anointing, the tabernacle is next anointed. The word for anoint is mashach, which means to anoint by smearing. This is the first time that the term mishkan or tabernacle is mentioned in the entire book of Leviticus. Until this point, the structure has been called Ohel Moed, or the tent of meeting. Regardless of what your translation says, it's usually wrong. They say tabernacle, it's not. It's been saying the tent of meeting until this point, and now the word tabernacle is introduced. The specific tabernacle, which is under the external tent, is mentioned by name. The anointing oil is described in Exodus 30, verses 22 through 38, every minute detail of which pointed to Christ. Those verses also took an entire sermon to explain. Again, if you didn't see that sermon, or if you don't remember its details, you can catch up on it this afternoon. In short, it signifies the presence of the Spirit in and through the work of Christ. But such a brief explanation does disservice to the majesty of what was seen in those details. You really should check them out. It is this marvelous presence of the spirit symbolized by the anointing oil that is used to anoint the tabernacle and all of the furniture contained within it. Verse 11, he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times. This is speaking of the brazen altar where the sacrifices were to be burned. The golden altar of incense being within the tabernacle was already anointed. Now a sevenfold nazah or sprinkling of the oil is made on the bronze altar. This sevenfold sprinkling has never been noted in any of the instructions. It is a special procedure that thus signifies the presence of the sevenfold spirit of the Lord, as is recorded in Isaiah chapter 11. It says there, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. This altar is being distinguished by this sevenfold sprinkling. It is the number of spiritual perfection. And so the sprinkling forms a connection between the offerer and the one to whom the offerings are made. They form a covenantal bond between both, which is only a shadow of the bond that now exists between God and his people because of the sacrifice of Christ. If you keep thinking of Jesus and what he has done for us, it is impossible to believe that God would ever reject somebody that is called on his name. Impossible, because he is there right now. As Bob said right at the beginning of the service, he doesn't love Christ any more than he loves us. He loves us as much as Christ, and when he sees us, he sees us through the, the covering of Christ. And so when he sees us, all he sees is perfection, even though we're imperfect. It's, it's a marvelous thing to consider what God has done for us because of the work of Christ. Verse 11 continues, Anointed the altar and all its utensils and the laver and its base to consecrate them. A different word is now used, returning again to mashach or smear of verse 10. The utensils of the altar as well as the laver and its base are all anointed in the same manner as the tabernacle and everything in it. As before, the anointing of these items signifies the presence of the spirit in what each item pictures. In this verse we can see the extremely high importance placed upon the altar. It is the only item which received the sevenfold sprinkling of the oil. And when the blood of a sacrifice is carried into the holy or the most holy place and sprinkled seven times, it is because the animal first died at the north side of this altar. This particular and special sprinkling points directly to the work of Christ, who is the only true, final, and complete sacrifice for the sins of man. It is what brings about full atonement and peace with God, and thus it is what provides access to the Spirit of God. The details of this brazen altar, which will help you to understand the significance of this sevenfold sprinkling, are found in Exodus 27, verses 1 through 8. Be sure to watch that sermon as well this afternoon, okay? Verse 12, and he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Only after the anointing of the items meant for ministry to the Lord is the high priest who ministers to the Lord then anointed. The anointing oil is poured out on his head in order to mashach or anoint him. It is the basis for the word mashiach or messiah. This was to, as it says, consecrate him. The word means to set apart. He is the one who is set apart from his brethren by the anointing. Thus, in type, he prefigures Christ the Messiah, who is spoken of by Isaiah with these words, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who were abound. Verse 13 finishes with these words, Then Moses brought Aaron's sons and put tunics on them, girded them with sashes and put hats on them, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Our verses end today with these words. The instructions for these tunics, sashes, and hats was given in Exodus 28, verse 40. Here's what it said there. For Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics, and you shall make sashes for them, and you shall make hats for them for glory and beauty. The tunics and the sashes for Aaron's sons were to be white. There was nothing else noticeable about them. The instructions are simple and without any special detail at all. The verb for making the tunics was asah instead of shabats, which identified Aaron's tunic. The garments of the sons were simple, plain, pristine white, and yet they were distinct from all the people around them. The word for hat is migbaot. This is the last of just four times that it's seen in scripture, so we can say goodbye to migbaot. And it is used only in reference to these caps For the sons of Aaron, it is from the same root as Giba or hills, or gabia, which is cups. Hence, they are caps which fit the head like a hill or like a cup, okay? At times in the Bible, Christ's garments, or those of angels, are said to be white. The glory and the beauty, then, is reflective of that which is of God, his righteousness. These white tunics, sashes, and hats picture those who are in Christ, adorned with his righteousness because of his work. It is he who has brought many sons to glory through his work. The hats, as I said, are the special word migbaot, which is from the same root as gibba, or hills, and gabia, or cups. Both words are tied directly to the Aramaic word gabatha, the place where Christ was judged before Pontius Pilate. The symbolism is beautiful. The sons of Aaron are types of the sons of God and priests of the Lord Jesus who are granted that status as the helmet of salvation upon their head because of the judgment rendered on him there at Gabatha. The statement that the garments of the sons of Aaron were for glory and for beauty was the same statement made for the making of the garments of Aaron. In other words, because of the work of Christ, his priests now bear the same glory and beauty as he before the Father. Think of it. Imagine what we have been granted because of the work of Jesus Christ. As we're at the end of the verses today, I want to take just a final moment and explain to you, as I do each week, why all of this detail is important for you. If you've never called on Jesus, these things might not make any sense at all, but they are all looking forward for a reason, and that reason is the redemption of man. Oftentimes people will email me and ask, well, what's going to happen to my puppies when they die? It's, you know, it's a good question. The Bible does say, it asks it kind of rhetorically in the book of Ecclesiastes. Does the spirit of man go up to heaven and does the spirit of that animal go down into the ground? Something like that. It's a little bit of a misquote. But I have to tell people when they ask questions like that, the Bible is not about the redemption of puppies. It's not about the redemption of anything but man. Angels are not redeemable. Only man is redeemable. Man is made in the image of God and we bear that image for a reason and God wants us to live holy lives in order to be pleasing to him. But we have sin which infects us. It's in us and we cannot live those holy lives. It is impossible. We can strive, we can go live like a monk over in a Buddhist country and sit under a Bodhi tree all day and pray to some foreign god. It does nothing but separate us further from God. All we're doing is we're trying to impress whatever deity is out there on our own merits. And the same is true with any religion that you will find on the face of this planet. Every religion comes down to one single thought. What am I going to do to please God? Except Christianity. And I'm talking about true biblical Christianity where God says, what am I going to do to reconcile them to me? He did the work. He did all of it by sending his son to die in our place to take away the sin debt that we have. So let me give you a couple verses. The wages of sin is death. We die because we have sin, but even before that, we are spiritually separated from God and spiritually dead because of the sin in our life. The wages of sin is death, and all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. It is universal. It is in every one of us. We inherited it. We cannot get rid of it, and because of that, we die. But the Bible says this wonderful three-letter word, but But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing that we would ever be able to do to please God, but Christ could because he was the sinless son of God, and he gave that life up in exchange for ours. And so when he looks at us, he sees righteousness, not ours, but Christ's. And it says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not an if, it's not a maybe. God has done this so that we can be redeemed and brought back to a relationship with our heavenly father. This is what God would ask of us. And this is what I would ask you to do today. Give your life to God through Jesus Christ and be reconciled to him. All right, that's all you need to do. And then he will be the mediator that we're looking at right now. This guy is being ordained to mediate between God and the people. That implies that there's no mediation without a mediator, right? Somebody asked me a day ago in an email, they said, "Um, uh, I have Jewish friends that uh, pray to God does God hear their prayers? And I said, no, I'm sorry, he doesn't. He hears all prayers, but he doesn't hear them in the sense of wanting to respond to them. It is impossible. The typology in the Old Testament shows us, right? Who did they go to to mediate for their sins? They went through the mediator who went to God on their behalf. Well, they don't have an Old Testament mediator, do they? And Christ is the fulfillment of that. So if that's the case, then God does not hear their prayers. He doesn't hear any prayers at all with the one exception And I told her, you make sure you tell him about Jesus because he wants to hear that prayer of acceptance of Jesus Christ, that he will hear. And once he hears that, he will hear every single prayer that you ever utter for the rest of your life, even the ones that you don't utter that are from the desperate soul of the weary heart. He will hear those prayers, but you have to come through Jesus first, okay? Our closing verse comes from John 19. It's verses 13 and 14. Now, when Pilate, this all pertains to us, think of what I just read you about the sons of Aaron and the Migbaot, which is a picture of Gabatha, where Christ took our judgment. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, behold, your king. Next week is Leviticus 8, 14 through 36. In these, there is great stuff for you. It's entitled, The Consecration of the Aaronic Priesthood. Part 2 That'll be our 12th Leviticus sermon. And I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? I'll tell you something. I have a person in here. I I think of this all the time when I'm working, and I'm so grateful for this person. I don't mean to embarrass you, and if I do, I'm sorry, but uh, we have Bible studies, right? And on Thursday night, they come when they can, and uh, it's Beth. She'll say something like, why are we reviewing this? If it doesn't pertain to us, why are we reviewing that? And I think, I remember one time she said to me, um, I came up to ask her about the, who should I vote for during the election? And she said, Charlie, you ought to know that. She says, why don't people know that? And I went home and I felt really bad. And then I thought, wait a minute, she's the specialist. I trust in her and Vic and a couple people. That is their job. But when people come to me, they say, well, what about puppies going to heaven? And I think, why don't you know that? It's because you have to go to a specialist, right? Somebody that's read the Bible and knows where the verse is. Let me show you. It doesn't answer the question. It's just..." But she challenges me on things. She did that recently with, like I said, the question about why are we reviewing this if it doesn't pertain to us? And I said, it's because when you study the enemy, you know what is, you you have, in other words, Democrats and Republicans, right? I'm a Republican, but if I don't know what the Democrats are doing, then I'm at a loss. And it's the same thing with people that have different theology. See what I'm saying? All of this bears on what we're seeing right here, because you'll come to me and you'll say, well, what about Jesus as our mediator? Can I lose my salvation and all that? And I've learned to not worry about those type of questions, whereas in the past it used to be, well, why don't people know this? It's because you have a job doing this, and you've got a job doing that, you've got this and that, and so you come to somebody that studies those things, and if I don't know, I will get you the answer. There are many times I don't know the answer, but I will get it for you because I know where to go. But that is what I'm so thankful about when people come to me and say things like that because it helps me to process my own life. I know that's a complete deviation, but it has to do with that last sentence that I just said. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. And when somebody asks a question like that, it means that God is working through them to, I want to know what you're talking about. There you go. Our uh, poem today is called The Consecration of the Aaronic Priesthood. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, these are the words he was then relaying. Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, the anointing oil too, A bull is the sin offering, two rams and a basket of unleavened bread, so you shall do. And gather all the congregation together for sure at the tabernacle of meeting's door. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was gathered together as one. At the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and Moses said to the congregation, This is what the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. Yes, he washed these ones. And he put the tunic on him, girded him with the sash, clothed him with the robe, and put on him the ephod. And he girded him with the intricately woven band of the ephod, and with it tied the ephod on him, as he was previously showed. Then he put the breastplate on him, as the Lord did state, and he put the Urim and Thummim in the breastplate. And he put the turban on his head, also on the front of the turban too. He put the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord had commanded Moses to do. Also Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them as the Lord to him did submit. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, anointed the altar and all its utensils as well, and the laver in its base to consecrate them as the Lord to him did tell. And he poured some of the anointing oil as the Lord did state on Aaron's head and anointed him, him to consecrate. Then Moses brought Aaron's sons and put tunics on them, girded them with sashes, and put hats on them. As the Lord had commanded Moses, he crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's, and didn't miss any dashes. How amazing! Every detail gives us precious insights to delight, things that provide our souls with surety that through Christ's work all things have been made right, and that our future is secure, a divine guarantee. Thank you, O God, for these marvelous hints of Jesus, written so long ago and yet as new as the day before our eyes. They are an anchor for the expectant souls of each of us as we wait upon his return. He, our splendid prize, and because of him we shall for all eternity give you our praise. Yes, we shall hail you, O God, because of Jesus, for eternal days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we have a lot of people that we need to pray for today and we certainly want to lift up who is right at the forefront of our thoughts because we need to hear from her is linda and we're praying that she's doing well in the hospital that she's getting better and that this will not be anything to cause her any any uh discomfort or distress beyond just a single day in the hospital we pray for paul and we pray for nick and we pray for nick, john and nancy and we pray for lord the whole list beverly i remember uh who has the eye injections and all of these people that we mentioned earlier, we would pray for them, that you would be with them, help them through their trials and their troubles and just be that ever-present thought in their mind that you are there with them, guiding them and directing them. Help us each to trust in you without any question that your word is true and that you are there and you're going to bring us to that great and glorious heavenly home and how we long for that day, may it be soon. And We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.